Hello, and welcome to the When We Were Young podcast, where the freaks who suspect they could never love anyone are not going to stop, so just give up. Hey. <laughs> I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to know I did a stupid thing. So stupid, getting braces. I thought, I thought he would love me. Getting braces. And for what? For something I don't even, I don't know where to put things, you know? I, I really do have love to give, I just don't know where to put it. I'm Chris, a master of the muffin and author of The Seduce and Destroy System, now available to you on video and audio cassette. Seduce and Destroy will teach you techniques to have any hard body blonde just dripping to wet your dock. Bottom line, language. The magical key to unlocking the female analytical mindset. Tap directly into her hopes, her wants, her fears, her desires, and her sweet little panties. And I'm Becky, the podcast host most likely to come in here. I give these things to you. You check. You make your phone calls. Look suspicious. Ask questions. I'm sick. I have sickness all around me. And you fucking ask me about my life? What's wrong? Suck my dick. That's what's wrong. And you, you fucking call me lady? Shame on you. (laughs) Shame on you. Shame on both of you. Well, um, I'm nominating you for Best Actress. Thank you. I won't win. (laughs) Never say never. But you'll win for Still Alice many years later. Yes, yes. (laughs) You hear that, Hollywood? You hear that, Hollywood? Today, we are re-examining Paul Thomas Anderson's acclaimed and Leviathan melodrama, 1999's Magnolia. This film that clocks in at three hours, eight minutes, was released it came out in 1999, right? Yes. It came out in December 1999, officially. So it probably had a qualifying release in 99 and then uh. opened wider on January 7th. But it is such a movie that it cannot <laughs> possibly be contained in one year. It was still considered as a new movie until at least 2010. And, you know. <laughs> and then of course It was Paul still Thomas. in the process of coming out. <laughs> exactly. Before we get into our views on this very long and long-acclaimed drama, Chris, I believe we have a new review of this very podcast. We do. And it is titled, Best Podcast Ever. Oh, I like it already. One star. No. It's five (laughs) stars. And this review comes from Pitch86. That is Pitch with a P, just in case it doesn't sound right. Not Pitch82? Nope. <laughs> I'm a pitch. I'm a lover. <laughs> Save it for the Meredith Brooks episode. <laughs> episode 1027. <laughs> the review says, if you're looking for a podcast full of pop culture, humor, and incredible nostalgia, then look no further. I listen to When We Were Young every day on the way to work. Every episode has its own charm and the hosts are full of personality and charisma. They each bring their own style, sense of humor, and pop culture knowledge to the table each episode. Thank you guys so much for making this show. It truly is one of the highlights of my day. Oh, thank you, Pitch. Wow, Pitch Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Best review ever. If you would like to share a similarly glowing endorsement of our show, please leave us a review on iTunes with five stars or more. And if you would like to leave us a bad review, just mail it to us. <laughs> oh yeah, we'll give you that address after the show. Just right when we were young, put it in the mailbox. We'll get it. <laughs> No stamp necessary. (laughs) 
So this is probably something we'll reference uh, several times this episode and also several times this year because 1999 was a pretty stacked year for movies and we are now coming up on the 20th anniversary of that. So to give you a little rundown of all the movies that came out in 1999, American Beauty, Magnolia, Fight Club, Being John Malkovich, The Talented Mr. Ripley, The Sixth Sense, The Blair Witch Project, Election, Three Kings, Office Space, Eyes Wide Shut, Go, Run Lola Run, The Iron Giant, Galaxy Quest, Boys Don't Cry, The Matrix, and The Insider. Also, She's All That. <laughs> like, all those teen movies. Yes. I was going with the mm, <laughs> quote-unquote good ones. I know. Well, I'm just saying that even even beside the good ones, there were still, like, very iconic Cinema. Mo- yeah. Very Absolutely. iconic movies happening. Yeah, there was Cruel Intentions, um, Austin Powers 2, Dick, The Phantom Menace, you know. Oh, my oh. God, The Phantom Menace. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah! You know you've got a big year on your hands when the first Star Wars movie in decades is released, and we forgot to like even <laughs> yeah. mention it. It's not like at the forefront of biggest movies for that year at yeah. all. At all. Yeah, it's really insane that all of these movies came out at the same time, just because they're all so different. I mean, we'll talk more about the Oscars that year in a little bit, but like the Oscars were not really very reflective of like the diversity in the movies that year. And, Cider House rules. Uh-huh. <laughs> you kings of New England. <laughs> you princes of New Amsterdam. But we've already talked about a few of these movies, like Election and The Blair Witch Project, and we'll... I'm sure talk about more of them because they were some of the most, I don't know, they felt very like avant-garde at the time. And yet I think they really set the tone for a lot of what cinema was about to be. They broke a lot of rules. Yeah, for sure. And yet we're still hugely financially successful too. Yeah. Like they really did connect with audiences. It is really surprising. And I mean, of course, I, I don't know if that was like the last year that theatrical cinema was that kind of all over the place. I don't know. But it certainly feels like it's gone down since then, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, I yeah. think in 1999, I think it's either four or five of the movies and the top grossing movies of that year were original properties, like The mm. Matrix. Right. And now I dare you to find something that's not a reboot or um, or a sequel yeah, or a I superhero. Yeah, I think there was maybe one in the top 20 or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's yeah. sad. Yeah, it is. And so many of these movies are just so different in so many ways. And it's sad. <laughs> <laughs> to me, like, this list of movies feels like it could come out today. Although they probably wouldn't. <laughs> but, like, they feel fresh <laughs> enough that they would. Like, mm-hmm. for some reason, the movies from 1999 feel very fresh to me still. And yet, when we, like, look at you know, Shakespeare in Love or things that were like a couple years earlier, they feel like older. There's a distance between those ones. And now that somehow the movies of 1999 I feel like don't have, for the most part. That's kind of a perfect entry into Paul Thomas Anderson, both as a filmmaker and of a kind of group of auteurs at this point in movie history. Paul Thomas Anderson was born June 26, 1970, in Studio City here in Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley. Oh, he's from Los Angeles, eh? He's from the Valley, huh? <laughs> oh, I, I wasn't familiar. His father was a man named Ernie Anderson, who was a legendary late-night horror movie, like those like B-movie midnight films kind of host on TV. And he was also a voiceover actor for ABC. Paul knew, even at seven years old, that he was going to be a screenwriter, movie director, and producer. And of course, that may be apocryphal, but suffice it to say, he knew, since he was a kid, exactly what he wanted to do with his life. Well, I knew that too, and I'm a podcast host. <laughs> exactly. 
years but old. good for you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> At four years old, Chris wandered into the kitchen and said, Mother, I am to be a podcaster. <laughs> Came true. <laughs> Go for your dreams, kids. Paul Thomas Anderson made his first feature film, Hard Eight, in 1996, after having dropped out of college and gone through the Sundance Institute to develop the feature from a short script. And then Paul Thomas Anderson achieved monumental amounts of attention and success in 1997 with his film Boogie Nights. On a budget of $15 million, Boogie Nights, which is a film about the San Fernando Valley (laughs) and also the porn industry in that scene in the 70s and 80s. On a budget of $15 million, Boogie Nights made over $43 million worldwide and Oscar nominations for Paul Thomas Anderson's screenplay and for supporting actors Burt Reynolds and Julianne Moore. And it was robbed for everyone else who did not get an Oscar (laughs) nomination because that cast is amazing. That movie is amazing. Yeah. Burt Reynolds won the Golden Globe for his performance in this film, but I really fully agree um, this is not an episode about Boogie Nights, but it easily could have been. <laughs> if you have not seen Boogie Nights, I believe it should still be on Netflix, and it is a perfect film, in my opinion. I think it's tremendous. Um, yeah, it's so good that even Mark Wahlberg deserves an Oscar nomination <laughs> for this movie. I mean, that is saying something. Uh, it was supposed to be Leo DiCaprio, but well, instead he went to do Titanic. I can't say that that was a mistake. <laughs> right. <laughs> Usually it's like, oh man, you should have, you really should have rethought that one, but... I'd probably, you know, if I had to choose, I'd probably still do Titanic. Yeah, I rewatched this movie this week in preparation, as well as Hard Eight, just to, you know, it was not difficult homework to go back and watch all the Paul Thomas Anderson (laughs) movies. So as I expected, it held up completely and I had no problems with it. I love Boogie Nights. I saw it like a couple months ago. It's still the best. (laughs) It's fantastic. And after the success of that film, New Line, which was his studio that he worked with, told P.T. Anderson that he could basically do anything. So he began... he did. So he did. He He did did everything. He did everything. That is the asterisk on that. (laughs) He began writing and wrote for nearly a year in the wake of Boogie Nights' release. And he set out to write something very small and very cheap, (laughs) a reflection of what was going on in his life with his family at the time and on certainly kind of some elements from his childhood and his relationship with his own parents. And that led to Magnolia, which did have a very limited release uh, in the premiere in Westwood was in December 8th, 1999. And it was debuted in Los Angeles in uh, on December 17th, 1999. But that first screening was probably still playing through the new year. (laughs) So the film had a budget of $37 million. The box office was $22.4 million domestic gross and $48.4 million combined worldwide. So surprisingly enough, for a three-hour-plus movie, this actually made its money back. I think my theater was full. My heart was full when I saw it. (laughs) (laughs) The shoot for Magnolia was scheduled to last 79 days and ended up stretching for over a month after. The effects budget itself, for reasons we will explain later, went over $10 million. (laughs) Paid off. I believe it paid off. Reviews at the time were mostly very positive. Roger Ebert gave it a loving four-star review saying, Magnolia is the kind of film I instinctively respond to. Leave logic at the door, do not expect subdued taste and restraint, but instead a kind of operatic ecstasy. At three hours, it is even operatic in length, as its themes unfold, its characters strive against the dying of the light, and the great wheel of chance rolls on toward them. A somewhat more mixed review came from one 
Rita Kempley, <laughs> who said, Anderson is no cynic. He's a big-hearted guy who's madly in love with his characters, and even when they're very bad, he can't bring himself to sneer at their shortcomings. Punish them, yes, for the filmmaker believes in a just God and the pop, aper- and the pop aphorism that w- what goes around comes around. Unfortunately, an orderly moral sense can be a shortcoming when it comes to cooking up startling revelations and profound insights. Invariably, good things like romance and redemption happen to good people, and that's too easy for so ambitious an undertaking. Not one of her best. Not one of her best, and clearly not one of her favorite movies, but we do love to stay on the Rita beat. (laughs) We still love you, Rita. This film ended up garnering three Academy Award nominations, Best Supporting Actor nomination for Tom Cruise, Best Original Screenplay for Paul Thomas Anderson, and Best Original Song for Amy Mann's Save Me. And again, deserved about 45 more (laughs) Oscar nominations just for the cast alone. Yeah, and I'm not sure who these other... uh, I'm not sure who... One in these other categories. Oh, I can tell you. Uh, oh, I can tell I you too. You can. Chris? In supporting actor, Michael fucking Kane so, for Cider House. Rules. Let's just talk about this right Jesus. now. Jesus. The supporting actor race in 1999 was Tom Cruise. I think we, we'll get to him, but I think we can all agree he was very good. And I think people consider this <laughs> one of his Best. standout performances. Yes. Haley oh, Joel yeah. Osment, also a fantastic performance in The Sixth Sense. The Green Mile, Michael, Michael Clark, Clark Duncan. Duncan. A great performance. I think it was one of yeah, his first roles. Jude Law. Jude Law in wow. uh, the, the Town of Mr. Ripley. Ripley. Scene stealing, like, made him a star. And the person who won, sorry, Mike O'Kane. Mike O'Kane. <laughs> but Mike O'Kane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, this time I'm actually looking for Mike O'Kane. <laughs> Mike O'Kane. <laughs> so weird. I mean, Cider House Rules was one of the dominant movies in this Oscar race, and it was the uh, Miramax movie. So we mm. talked about a little bit about what was going on there in the Shakespeare in Love episode, but I've never heard anyone talk about the Cider House Rules no. except for disparaging it for being anywhere near this Oscar race. And it's a John Irving book, and I love John Irving. He's probably one of my favorite authors of all time. But even I'm like, what is happening here? All of these movies that are like so fresh and new and these performances that are so in your face. And and sorry, Michael Caine, but like the most like vanilla performance out of all of them wins, which I guess isn't surprising knowing the Oscars. Yeah, that and the, the Green Mile, I think, was also a bit of a vanilla choice just because it felt like really just like, oh, we forgot to give Oscars to the Shawshank Redemption. So here you go, <laughs> yeah, Green Mile. Exactly. I think even at the time, it was very obvious that there were a lot of movies that felt a lot more deserving of awards than those two in particular. Some of the ones that were nominated, you know, Green have Mile a better is, reputation. But. Green Mile is, is more memorable and interesting than the Cider House Rules, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and Amy Mann lost to, I think, Tarzan, was it? Mm-hmm. Amy Tarzan? Mann lost to Phil Collins' You'll Be In My Heart <sighs> from Tarzan. Which That's we have, a fucking crime. That is a fucking travesty of travesties. Who won Best Original Screenplay, then? Alan Ball. Oh, Alan Ball. Okay. Oh, that <laughs> We'll get there in the, in the next episode. I was thinking it might have been being John Malkovich, but I was pretty sure it didn't win. But that was a great category for that year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, I'm sorry, but I completely agree with you, Chris. Cider House Rules is not exactly a film that any of us is eager to revisit. We don't quote from it. 
on the next episode of the podcast. You did call from it today, though. (laughs) I did, but I feel like even though I saw that movie in the theater, I mostly remembered lines like that from the numerous parodies of the Cider House rules that came about after. I can tell you, I don't remember a single thing about that movie. Like, I think Charlie Theron was in it. Arika Badu is in it. (laughs) Okay, I don't remember that. There was something to do with abortion. Yeah, Dewey from Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> they abort him. Is that what Toby Maguire and Shell? I I just I I know the book very well. Mm-hmm. So none of these things are ringing a bell to me. That movie did not stick. <laughs> yeah, well, we all yeah. remember it's about Toby Maguire killing Malcolm in the Middle. You heard Becky. <laughs> I think what we were trying to say is the Cider House doesn't. <laughs> That wasn't what the movie was about, but that's what the movie was trying to say. I think that's what it was aiming for. Life is unfair. So, as I said, Paul Thomas Anderson at least initially set out to write a very simple thing. But he also very intentionally set out to make something of an ensemble piece. It's basically eight stories about really more than nine characters, but kind of nine main characters, and specifically two dying men and all the people and family that are affected by their death. And even more simply than that, it's kind of a movie about American and Los Angeles angst. And frogs. And frogs. It's definitely a story about fathers and children and kind of what happens when they're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson wrote all of the roles for the main characters in these movies for the specific actors who played them. So I'm going to lay out the cast as well as the characters they play to encapsulate the movie for us. Buckle up. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I hope you have a notepad to take notes on. I really hope this episode isn't as long as Magnolia. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Robards plays Earl Partridge, the former producer of game shows, including one central to the story of this film called What Do Kids Know? He's long retired and he's now dying of cancer and he's completely besieged by regret at the end of his life. His caretaker is Phil Parma, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was a key part of Paul Thomas Anderson's kind of actors ensemble. Paul Thomas Anderson first saw Philip Seymour Hoffman in Scent of a Woman and reached out to him and befriended him then. And he was a big part of why Tom Cruise was actually excited to work in this movie for the chance to act opposite Philip Seymour Hoffman. Really? Who at the time was still just mostly a character actor. Wow. I really enjoyed watching their scenes together and remembering that they were also together in Mission, Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, yeah. Yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman's Phil Parma is a simple man who is an at-home nurse caretaking for Jason Robarts at the end of his life. Earl Partridge asks as his dying wish to reconnect with his son. That man is Tom Cruise, who in this film plays Frank T.J. Mackey, a misogynist pickup artist. Oh, he's just misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's pretty much a lady killer, yeah. Respect the cock. And tame the cunt. Tame it. Take it on head first with the skills that I will teach you at work and say, Noah, you will not control me. Noah, you will not take my soul. Noah, you will not win this game.
Tom Cruise called Paul Thomas Anderson after Boogie Nights, and Paul Thomas Anderson describes that as the president of movies giving him a call. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that it was actually he decided to do Magnolia because of the scene in Boogie Nights where the camera is just focused on Mark Wahlberg's face. And during that last scene in Alfred Molina's house and the gunshots, the camera is just staring at Mark Wahlberg think for like a minute and a half. (laughs) Um, And he decided like, this is a director I need to work with who would do something like that in a movie. It's like, I want someone to watch me think for minutes and minutes and minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure Tom Cruise had a lot of favorite parts in that movie, <laughs> but it is kind of amazing that an actor of his level would be reaching out to a director who'd only made a couple features at that point. Yeah, Tom Cruise isn't generally a risk taker. So <laughs> Absolutely. And this part was way out on a limb for him and he was nervous about the role but like I think this is a really pivotal moment in his career one that I wish he had repeated I mean when you want to talk about Tom Cruise I think a lot of people are like oh he plays Tom Cruise in every movie that's sort of true here but he's also giving like a real performance and if you want to tell anyone that like Tom Cruise can act like give them Magnolia Mm mm-hmm Tom Cruise plays this misogynistic pickup artist named Frank T.J. Mackey, who is hiding his daddy issues by putting on this crazy persona and teaching other sad, incel men how to belligerently hit on women. The truth is, he was abandoned by Earl Partridge, and he had to take care of his own mother as she died from cancer decades before. He's never forgiven Earl Partridge, but then in the movie, he has the chance to meet with Earl on his deathbed and face his family and past. Next, we have Julianne Moore, who was, as we said, in Boogie Nights and nominated for an Oscar for that. In this movie, she plays Linda Partridge, the wife of Earl Partridge. She doesn't want to face that Earl's dying. She feels really guilty for having married him just for the money and having cheated on him a bunch of times. So she also, now in his dying moment, wants to give up her money in the will. When she learns that she can't actually do that, she tries to down her husband's morphine and kill herself in her car, but gets saved by a passerby. Next, Philip Baker Hall was in Sydney and in Boogie Nights, and he plays Jimmy Gator, host of the quiz show What Do Kids Know? He's filming his last episode, and Jimmy has learned he's going to die soon. He wants to reconnect with his daughter, Claudia, but she rejects him, and Jimmy Gator has to face the fact that he cheated on his wife incessantly, and also possibly that he sexually abused his own daughter. Melora Walters plays his daughter, Claudia. She was also in Boogie Nights. She was also (laughs) excellent in Boogie Nights. In Magnolia, she is a coke addict, and Jimmy Gator wants to reconnect with her and tell her that he's dying, so she completely basically loses her mind at him, kicking him out, screaming at him, turning up the music so loud that the neighbors call the cops. And then one who arrives is John C. Riley, Also in Boogie Nights. <laughs> and, and was also in Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> Playing Jim Curring, a completely incompetent cop who nevertheless is desperately earnest in trying to do at least one thing right by at least one person in the world. He responds to this noise complaint meeting Claudia and immediately falls head over heels for her and she for him. They go on a date that night and he admits his incompetence and fears and she admits her fears, and they seem to be pretty instantly in love. Jeremy Blackman plays Stanley Spectre, a young kid on the quiz show hosted by Philip Baker Hall who realizes he's just a performing monkey for his controlling dad. The mean adults and other kids tease him in the shoot for this quiz show's all day, and they don't let him use the restroom, so he wets himself and gets mocked by everyone. In the wake of this, he basically freezes up and refuses to participate in the game show anymore. Not at all. I'm not silly and cute. I'm smart, so that shouldn't make me something. Something so people can watch how silly it is that he's smart. I, I know. I know things. I know. I know. I, I know I have to go to the bathroom. I, I... Take us off the air. Go to the credits. All the credits. Enough of this. Oh. God fucking damn it! Shut up, bitch! What the fuck? 
Next, William H. Macy plays an older quiz kid known as Quiz Kid Donnie Smith. He's a quiz man now. (laughs) He is a full-grown quizman, and he was also a champion of this show, What Do Kids Know?, as a child, but has never really outrun that success in his life. And worse, his parents stole his money from him, so now he works at a shitty electronics store. Donnie is about to get braces because he's in love with a guy who tends bar at his local watering hole who happens to have braces. Solomon, please, please! I am so fucked here if you do this. This is the worst timing. The worst timing I could ever imagine. I need to keep working. I, I have so many debts, so many things. I have, I, have, I, have, I have my surgery. My oral surgery coming. What surgery? Oral surgery. Corrective teeth surgery. What is that? Braces. Braces? Yes. You don't need braces. Yes, I do. Your teeth are fine. Your teeth are straight. I need surgery. I need corrective oral surgery. Honey, you got struck by lighting that time in Tahoe. You want a vacation? I don't think braces is a good idea. So when Donnie gets fired because he's terrible at his job, he decides to steal money from the safe in that store. When he does steal the money and flees the scene, though, he immediately feels guilt and regret and returns to the store to return the money. A sudden storm of frogs begins to rain from the sky. (gasps) And I hope this is not a spoiler, but if you haven't seen the movie, it's not just actual rain that is an anomaly in Los Angeles during (laughs) Magnolia. There is an actual rain of frogs. They are equally rare, though. (laughs) So Quiz Kid Donnie Smith is trying to make good and return this money. The storm of frogs knocks him off the building. John C. Reiling's cop character is driving during this calamitous moment. He actually rescues Donnie Smith and performs a truly heroic act for maybe the first time in his whole career, but certainly for that day. The final member of the cast I wanted to mention was Ricky Jay, who is both the current producer of What Do Kids Know and a seemingly omniscient narrator for us throughout this movie, who in voiceover reveals several pieces of historic happenstance, the kinds of coincidences that are too specific and strange to be completely random. And Ricky Jay was also in Boogie Nights. <laughs> Ricky Jay as well was in Boogie Nights. <laughs> I think half the cast was in Boogie Nights. I think you forgot mm, like 45 cast members. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to leave out the rest of them. We're going to mention some of them as they kind of come along in our discussion. This film is chock full of really specific small characters who leave an impression. So I guess my question to start this discussion off of the movie is, did you see Magnolia when it first came out? Um, And what did you think of it and Paul Thomas Anderson at the time? I'll go first. No, I did not, (laughs) actually. Wow. I never saw Magnolia in the theater. I still haven't. I was 16 at the time, and this was coming from the director of Boogie Nights, which was a, not a porn movie, but it was a movie about porn and not something I wanted to see with my parents. So I did not seek to see this with them either. And I'm not actually even sure if I had seen Boogie Nights yet when this came out. It was probably about this time because it, I remember it took me a while to see Boogie Nights. So I didn't see this until home video. But when I did, I instantly, you know, was struck by just how bold and original it was. You know, this was at a point before I had seen a lot of movies that had influenced this movie. So to me, this felt very, very original. I do have one good Magnolia story from back in the day, though, which is that in 2001, I took the AP calculus test with a bunch of classmates. And the test was like a few hours long, I think, but we were allowed to leave school after the test um, rather than like go on to more classes. So for some reason, everyone came over to my house and we watched Magnolia. (laughs) (laughs) So it's probably like between five and ten people, which was really fun. In retrospect, weird, like that a bunch of 17-year-olds would sit through like 
Magnolia, but people were into it. We were having fun. I remember us quoting things like, shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up! Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I have a lot of fond memories of this movie, mostly from college. Um, I will maybe ruin your guys' intros by saying <laughs> this is probably the 1999 movie that we all most loved, like collectively, that we would most agree on. <laughs> Do you hear my thunder? Because Chris is stealing it. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Uh, not a surprise, though. It was one of the things I remember talking to Becky about first. Yeah. Uh, when we were ignoring a football game at USC. <laughs> yes. Um, we, at one point, just started calling it Mags because we could just, like, shorthand it. Because it was our friend. Yeah. Our friend, the good movie Mags. Chris and Becky and Mags would just hang out sometimes. Wow, I really feel left out of this. <laughs> you weren't there yet. I don't know if I could replace Mags, honestly. <laughs> I'm not sure I measure Well, we asked Mags to be the third co-host of this <gasps> podcast. Now the truth comes but out. they turned us down because it's not a real person, it's a movie. <laughs> wow. And yet, this is one of those movies that was such a favorite movie of mine that I stopped watching it. Uh, I had not seen this movie for, I think, literally a decade before rewatching it for this because I really, I can trace everything back to 2009, which is when I moved to New York. I don't remember watching it at any point after that. So I think, yeah, it had been 10 years. So even though a part of me is very, very intimately familiar with this movie and in a way it feels like I know everything about it, I really was coming to it from a place of not knowing exactly like how it would feel in 2019. It's really funny that you said that because I was thinking the last time I watched it before this time for this podcast and I judge everything by when I met my husband which was 2010 <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I hadn't seen it since I met him because I feel like I would have discussed it with him or he would have watched it with me or just I don't have those memories so it must have been a decade for me as well I saw this movie in theaters I think it must have been opened in December because I remember there was like a really big crowd at the movies like I very specifically remember, it, it, it opened in New York City on December seventeenth. Okay, well, just I like in, in Los Angeles. Well, I wasn't so. in the city; I was on Long Island. But that's why I'm thinking it must have been like holiday movies or something. But I think it was out by Christmas in a lot of places. Because I remember, what was I? A junior, junior in high school. I went with my other junior-aged friends to go see it, and it was sold out. <laughs> And I really loved Boogie Nights, so that's why I was like really looking forward to this. So I remember being like, "What? How's Magnolia sold out? <laughs> like, what the weird. hell?" Because I knew it was like a weird movie, but I was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> so I remember that very specifically that people were seeing this movie. I remember my movie theater being full, and I just went through some weird catharsis seeing this movie when I was sixteen. I think it happened quite a bit in 1999 with like Bing John Malkovich is the other one that comes to mind where I just watched the movie and thinking like oh my god what are they doing like I didn't know movies could do this <laughs> I didn't know it was like allowed to like do these things and by these things I mean break out in song <laughs> and not just break out in song break out in song three-fourths through the movie <laughs> like three-fourths through the movie this movie is still surprising me and then the frog thing like I remember five five-eighths of the movie <laughs> yeah. so I didn't know anything about the frogs. And the second, like, the frog came down on the windshield, like, it movie almost became, like, a horror movie in a way. Like, I was so scared. <laughs> and I remember, like, grabbing my friend's, like, arm. And, we like, we were just like, oh, my God, what's happening? And just the way that he shoots that sequence, I just 
remember being really terrified, like, oh my God, anything could happen. Especially that push into to the painting where it says, but it did happen. It's like, oh my God, like, what is happening with this movie? <laughs> and me and my friends, I remember all of us were like obsessed with it. We loved it. So don't discount teenagers <laughs> because we were all 16, 17, and we all fucking loved this movie. And I had seen it over and over and over and over, over the years. I would just put it on if I was like moving and I was like, well, got three hours. <laughs> like, let's just put Magnolia on. But I don't think I've seen it in like 10 years. So I was really interested in doing it for this episode this year because it's the 20th anniversary, which makes me feel so old. <laughs> yeah. Again, every time we do the math on this show, yeah. I just end up sad. Oh, man. The lesson is don't do math. <laughs> I have to say that I really wanted this movie to come out in theaters again for the 20th anniversary so I could see it in theaters, but it didn't. But I probably saw the opposite good way, which is on the floor of my apartment with my baby crying. <laughs> um, and my husband was injured and behind me, uh, nodding off every so often and just being like, what's happening now? And uh, it's really hard to find three hours to watch a movie like this. And I think that's why it's not something I can just throw on. Would it, be, would it have been easier if frogs had started raining down? Would that have like kept you more alert? Maybe. I don't know. We, we won't know. We can try it next time. Yeah. I feel like she probably wouldn't have been paying attention to the movie because <laughs> yeah. it would have been raining fucking frogs. That's yeah. a fair That's a fair note. Yeah. That's a fair note. So I, too, saw Magnolia in the theaters. I'm pretty sure by that point I had already seen Boogie Nights and loved it. My cousin at the time was just really like a conduit to really good cinema for me. And he really liked and still likes uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, my cousin is now a filmmaker, a writer, director himself. He was one of those people who, when Christmas time came around, would come back from college and we would go to the movies to see as many movies as we possibly could while he was on break together. So it wasn't just my cousin I went to Magnolia with. For some reason, completely unknown to me even to this day, convinced my parents. I thought you were going to say you took a girl on a date. <laughs> no, no, this wasn't that mistake. That was another time. Uh, no, to I, I brought to Magnolia my parents, my cousin, my aunt, my uncle, and my very old grandmother, Helen. Did they like it? <laughs> oh, Becky, did they ever not like it? <laughs> this was a pivotal movie for me and a pivotal movie-going experience for me because it was one of the most, it probably wasn't the first, but it was certainly the most dramatic iteration of that moment when you recognize your movie taste is very different from other people's <laughs> movie taste. And yet you are watching that movie with them, so you have the experience <laughs> of watching their very different interpretation of the movie as it goes along. Um, and that is very much underselling it. <laughs> the first moment my family started audibly groaning was during Julianne Moore's yelling monologue at the drugstore. Uh, my grandmother, of course, fell asleep basically in the opening sequence. <laughs> she <laughs> during, did herself that favor. <laughs> oh, oh, she did us all that favor for a bit. My family was openly rebelling by the time the song Why, Wise Up starts playing and the characters in the film all sing along with it. And when the frogs happen at two hours, 46 minutes in, they were furious. Abs my parents especially were just indignant. My grandmother uh, was woken up by the frogs, so <laughs> she was pissed off that the movie had successfully interrupted her nap. 
Um, they were all just so angry that something so seemingly to them random, because they really weren't kind of following along with the mechanics and dramatics of this movie. They were just outraged that something like this would happen in any movie, but much less this movie and much less this late in the movie. Meanwhile, I don't remember being more enthralled by a cinematic experience in my life other than, you know, something in the realm of like a Star Wars or an action adventure type movie. Seeing Magnolia in the theater was a complete thrill to me. And it was a thrill on so many levels because it did so many things that movies, as I understood them, were not really supposed to do. Like make your parents angry. <laughs> <laughs> like really piss off my family, for one. Like, have musical sequences and not just kind of a pivotal soundtrack song playing and dramatic things happening, but the characters in the movie breaking into song collectively together. And then that Reign of Frogs, especially revisiting it, you see it planted the whole way through, but obviously really is kind of a break and a turning point in this movie. But I don't remember being more blown away by a film or by a kind of writer and director. And so this movie was really pivotal for me as being one of the first things that made me consider wanting to write and direct movies. At that time, like, obviously there was still a couple years before I would even be applying to colleges, but I really didn't have any kind of read on exactly what I wanted to do with my life or what I wanted to study in school. This movie was one of the first movies that kind of showed to me that you could have such a singular vision and get the kind of cast and get the kind of other like filmmakers and craftsmen together to really put it into something that is so layered and complicated, but still really thrilling to watch. And then the other thing about this movie that was really gigantic for me was the soundtrack. Amy Mann did the songs that directly inspired P.T. Anderson when he was writing the movie and also kind of directly inspire some of the character stories. So at first, uh, P.T. Anderson was kind of adapting some of these songs, uh, which were B-sides and yet-to-be-released songs that Amy Mann was working on while he began writing. The first line of her song, Deathly, becomes a really pivotal line of dialogue in the movie. No! that I've met you Would you object to Never seeing each other again Cause I can't afford to Climb aboard you No one's got that much ego Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? What? Just say no. I won't say no. Just say no. Wait, Claudia. Claudia. Just let me go. What is it? What is it? Please. Please. Just let me go. So this movie was also a real turning point for me in terms of my taste in music. By this point, I was already a really huge fan of Fiona Apple, who turned out to be Paul Thomas Anderson's girlfriend at the time. He dedicated the movie to her. Dedicated the movie to her. Before Fa and Ia. <laughs> yep, Ia was his father. And in my learnings about Fiona Apple, I saw that her music producer and musical collaborator, John Bryan, was a soundtrack composer himself. 
John Bryan did the entire soundtrack score for Magnolia. There are just these beautiful, sweeping orchestral songs on the movie's score, and those absolutely blew me away too. But so did Amy Mann's songs, which really paired these super clever lyrics and brilliant wordplay with really inventive and beautiful pop music. So Amy Mann and the songs on this soundtrack were really a big push for me also to consider that I could write songs because I'd been playing piano since like second grade and was writing poetry and really liked writing poetry, but I never really considered putting the two together um, until I heard Amy Mann's music and just experienced how much just those songs kind of elevate to me every single aspect of this movie. Yeah, Amy Mann was also probably the first and maybe one of the only, like, even since then, singer-songwriters that I've really been into. You don't hear a lot of just, like, singer-songwriters in, like, sort of top 40 radio. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You don't say! (laughs) Gaga? Not back then. Oh, not back then. Okay. Yeah. So I too got into Amy Mann through the soundtrack and then like later her album Lost in Space became like really meaningful to me in that much like I like a writer director, you know, that clear vision when you're the one who's writing and performing a piece of art. I basically became a fan of Amy Mann like I became a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson just because what they put out there is so clearly them. Absolutely. And I'll get into the kind of like overall thematic push of it in just a second. But I wanted to briefly pause on Amy Mann because this soundtrack was a career changing thing for her. This was a huge seller for Amy Mann. This soundtrack sold 410,000 copies in North America as of February 2001. And this really gave her career and her name a boost at the time when her record company was totally stalling on releasing her next album. So with the proceeds from the gold-selling soundtrack CD from Magnolia, Amy Mann was able to buy back all the master tapes, and she released her next and very successful album, Bachelor Number no. 2, on her own independent music label. And she has been not just an independent artist, but she has been running her own independent music label since then and put out other artists on it, which to me has always been really cool, even aside from how much I love Amy Mann's music. The song Save Me on that soundtrack was again nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars and lost to Phil Collins' You'll Be In My Heart because there is no fucking justice in this universe whatsoever. Retrospect, I also kind of wonder why they nominated Save Me and not Wise Up when Wise Up is the song that they're all actually singing in the film. So it would probably have been easy to get more recognition for that. Save Me is like the number you're that ends on, it ends the movie. It's more radio friendly. Yeah. It's more of a like, 
You can put it on in a coffee house. Yeah, wise up sad. sad. That's fair. <laughs> Not that save me is a <laughs> ball of joy, but... It's a banger. So what did we think about Magnolia now? <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> Pardon me, I have to go to my car. Incidentally, do either of you have morphine? <laughs> <laughs> It's great. It's great still. I feel like when I was younger that the movie was smarter than me, and maybe it still is, but I think that I'm older, I I recognize that it's a beautiful mess. I feel like it's messy, but everything in it is so beautifully done that anything that I'm confused about or in a standard screenplay, you know, like you you want certain things to happen in certain moments, you know, like I, I forgive all of it because it has so much heart. The acting is so good. The directing is so good. The soundtrack is so good. It takes so many risks. I've still never seen a movie like this. There's there's no movie that I can even think like has come close to like taking the types of risks that this movie does. I'm intrigued by it still and fascinated by it still. I think it's just a little sloppy as far as like maybe tying up some sort of loose ends or some character threads, but generally like I just I love it still. It's still mags to me. <laughs> Chris, what say you on the mags? Somewhat similar to Becky. Yeah, it was so mind-blowing to me at the time. And I really, I feel like I didn't have any frame of reference for it because it was just kind of coming out of nowhere. And it was this weird, rare thing that was just taking so many risks. And it just, I unabashedly loved it. And so it was interesting coming back to it this time, seeing it as more of a continuation of things that other filmmakers had done. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is very original, but he also didn't come out of nowhere quite the way that it felt like he did when I was 17. I guess I'll mention Shortcuts right now, uh, which is a Robert Altman film that was released in 1993. Magnolia was influenced by several different films. I think Network is a big influence, um, but Shortcuts... When I saw that, which was probably about 10 years ago as well, it was almost disappointing to see something that was so similar to Magnolia because I felt I I had such a love for Magnolia that it was almost like, oh no, like (laughs) there was a precedent for this. Um, Shortcuts is another movie with a crazy huge cast. It stars Julianne Moore, Tim Robbins, Lily Tomlin, Lily Taylor, Robert Downey Jr., Francis McDormand, Andy McDowell, Jack Lemmon, Jennifer Jason Leigh, Peter Gallagher, Ann Archer, Madeline Stowe, Tom Waits, Lyle Lovett, and Alex Trebek. <laughs> is he actually acting in it? No, he's he not- is playing no. himself. Oh, okay. Yeah. In a way, aren't we all acting, <laughs> Becky? It is loosely related characters in Los Angeles, uh, including a cop, a nightclub singer, a diner waitress, a phone sex operator, a makeup artist for movies, a limo driver, and a kid's birthday clown. There's lots of drinking, swearing, drugs, frank sexuality discussion. There's a suicide in a garage, and it all culminates in sort of a giant event, and in this case, an earthquake that shatters through all these stories. So it definitely set a precedent for Magnolia, which doesn't necessarily make me like Magnolia any less, but it does, like, Magnolia feels, in a way, very much another take on shortcuts. I feel very similar to that when I see some Quentin Tarantino movies and then I realized oh he just did a shot for shot like like recreation of something from another movie Mm -hmm. so yeah I get that 
Yeah. Okay, so unfortunately, I did not have time to rewatch all of Shortcuts in preparation for this. I love Robert Altman, and I love Shortcuts in particular. I don't think tonally that it's all that similar a movie. I think Shortcuts plays much more comedically, at least from all the parts of it I watch and from what I remember of the rest of the movie. And I feel like there's a tangible difference metaphysically in the fact that what's happening in Magnolia is this reign of frogs that is like a literally biblical thing rather than like an earthquake, which is really a natural disaster and kind of like a force of nature. Whereas in Magnolia, it kind of feels like specifically this reign of frogs is called forth by these particular characters and their fucked upness. But I definitely do want to not just cop to, but highlight the kind of Altman influences here. Um, Because P.T. Anderson was part of a wave of auteurs in the 90s, along with like David Fincher, David O. Russell, who, in contrast to the kind of like postmodern approach of like calling on all these genre things and all these previous artists to make fun of them or to like point out how full of shit they were these writer directors were like incorporating these stylistic and direct story influences in an earnest way and i think magnolia is that kind of document where it's becky just like you're saying it is a very beautiful ornate mess but one of the key things to me is that it is an earnest mess and i think that a lot of that kind of spiritually comes from altman pete anderson definitely cops to the influence of nashville on boogie nights uh he was truly intending magnolia uh to be an ensemble movie so it was also kind of influenced by nashville he quotes someone as describing magnolia like altman on amphetamines and he loved that characterization of it and the other biggest similarity uh in in paul Thomas Anderson's own mind uh, between himself and Robert Altman is that they were both directors who were kind of in awe of actors and so much of their love for actors and what actors do on film affected the way that not just that they wrote, but how they cut movies together. So I think there are just so many Altman touches throughout this movie, not just shortcuts. There's that kind of constant overlaying of interplaying music and diegetic sound in the world of the movie and soundtrack music. Like on the Quiz Kids No set, you can hear the film score playing. You hear everyone talking in the entire studio and someone's just like kind of randomly playing a song on harmonica over in the corner. And that kind of juxtaposition of all of this noise and activity, plus the really kind of active use of cameras on tracks and cameras panning to and fro, like, really make the whole movie feel very kinetic. That's one of the biggest instances for me where they're taking direct influence from the kind of directors that came before. So you liked it? <laughs> yeah, I think I think I liked it. I think I'm still a fan. This movie still blows me away. Um, and if anything, I've kind of reached a point where I love it for its messiness. I love it for the questions that it doesn't really feel like answering. Like, where did the gun go when the cop loses his gun? Or, you know, where are the frogs coming from? Going off something that you were saying before, the score, I think, is just beautiful to listen to, but it also really helps connect all the stories. I think like we were talking about like in Saving Private Ryan, like sometimes the score was too much where there shouldn't have been a score. I love that this movie has a score because it helps kind of take all of the different movements of the different stories happening and makes it like a wave. Like this is when this is happening and this is how everyone is feeling in this movement. And then it changes to this kind of sound and this, you know what I mean? Um, Like it, it helps connect everything together because you are jumping 
jumping all over the city in different places. And a lot of the characters aren't ever directly interacting with or connected to each other. Right, but I, I feel like, you know, when it's 82% cloudy or something and, like, suddenly the, the tone shifts and then you kind of feel that with all the stories and if you didn't have that score there, I feel like it would feel a lot more muddled and you wouldn't, it wouldn't feel like we're entering the next chapter. You know, it would feel just like, where are we in this three-hour movie? What you just said reminded me of a note I had as well, which is that this feels like a symphony where there are definite movements and I, I kind of feel like every character is a different instrument and yet they're all like, they're being played at different times and then sometimes they're all being played together. But even though they're all adding something different, like it all comes together to a bigger whole, but it feels like they're all kind of moving together in this way. And I put on part of the movie again today to watch, you know, just like the last half hour or something and was really shocked at the scenes that were coming up because it was like right in the middle of when Philip Baker Hall confesses that he may have molested their daughter and then it cuts to like Tom Cruise in the middle of like weeping and it's like these are all like the big scenes that you would expect to be continuous scenes and yet like there's this is just like a such a masterful editing job of like hitting all of these scenes in these very emotional moments and playing them off of each other so that like this intense emotion is like carried over into the, like the next characters and like you can cut back into a character who's experiencing this intense emotion and not feel like wait what's going on here because it's sustained throughout all of these characters and it's it's really quite incredible that it it's as if like one character is feeling this emotion but it's actually like spread out between eight different characters right and it's not just that these things are kind of all neatly compartmentalized it really does feel like they are all part of a greater whole and that one movement leads to another and to me that's testament not just to pt anderson's writing and direction and all of that but also to the editor dylan titchener who was like his main editor at the time yeah, well done. Um, Snaps. Yeah, Snaps I heard an guy. apocryphal <laughs> story that I'm sure is absolutely true, that when P.T. Anderson would finish a draft of his script that was inevitably like 200 pages at least, not even just for something like Magnolia, he would send that script to Dylan Titchener and Dylan would return that script minus like 80 to 100 pages mm-hmm. that he would not return to Paul Thomas Anderson until after the movie was done and in the can. And I totally believe that, but especially for a movie like this, it's like a movie that feels greater than the sum of its parts but wouldn't ever feel greater than the sum of its parts were it not for that really masterful job editing it all together and mixing in all those elements in a way that made the whole thing feel like it's moving and breathing together. Yeah, one of the Oscars I feel like this really missed out on was editing, which it wasn't even nominated for, probably because it's so long and people think, well you didn't edit it (laughs) because it's too long. Yeah, we just filmed it for a day, three hours straight. (laughs) But, like, the extent to which this movie works is, I mean, if it was not well edited, it would not work at all. Like, the... the it, there are so many opportunities this movie would have fallen apart. Yeah, yeah this movie is not a slog. <laughs> no. Like, like, oh, like, three hours, but it's fascinating it was it was hard to find a place to pause if i had to like go get a bottle for my baby or something like i didn't want to get up mm-hmm. i had to pause it and get some bottles for my baby too <laughs> yeah. and i rewatched magnolia in whole at least three times before we sat down to record Just in a row for nine hours <laughs> no not actually in a row because i wanted to give myself the 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 space of at least a couple hours breathing room um but even I was surprised at the extent to which it did not lose its luster. Um, and I also think that really does need to 
I, I think that also really is testament to the power of the acting throughout this movie. Like, I think this is a perfectly cast movie on every level. Oh, yeah. So I feel like we're going to get into Tom Cruise, maybe. But I feel like Jason Robards missed out on getting an Oscar nom because yeah. he... I cannot agree more. Like, his... I, I already knew I love Tom Cruise um, in this movie and everybody, but, you know, he gets a lot of the shine of this movie. But, like, coming in this time, I was so taken aback by Jason Robards. I was just floored by his performance. Both in, especially, like, his performance and Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, they play off of each, play off of each other so well. Because Jason Robards' character, Earl Partridge, is still such a toxic, poisonous bag of shit. <laughs> and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is, is just so genuine and pure and clearly knows this is the end and is, like, determined to stick that out. Like, it's, it's still absolutely gut-wrenching to me. It's mm-hmm. so well done. Yeah, I too was struck more by Jason Robards than I had been before. Yeah, it, it was interesting this time. I think there are certain characters that stand out more, uh, Tom Cruise being one of them. There's several others, I think. This time watching the movie, some of the more quieter characters stood out more so. Philip Seymour Hoffman was another one that I thought more about this time watching it than before. So one question I've kind of always had with this movie, and I have a lot of questions. What is Phil doing in this movie? Or, like, who is he? Like, everyone else is so closely tied to everything thematically, and he's sort of this random character who doesn't have any ties to anyone except for Earl. He's taking care of him. But he, you know, like, has no issues of his own that we know about. We don't know anything about his family. Like, there's so many more ties between everyone else, and yet he feels like this random character that almost feels like he shouldn't be one of, like, the main eight or nine of them. And so I've always kind of been like, do I want more from his character? Did they just, like, cast a really great actor and then, like, try and, like, feature him more? And so this time I just, I was much more struck by his character character and the kindness of him. He is kind of the only character who's really taking care of anyone in this movie. There's a lot of really selfish people in this movie. And then there are some people who are sort of trying to do some good and mostly not doing great at it. And he's the one character who stands out and who, like, has the follow-through to be like, this character wants this thing and needs this thing, and I'm going to follow through, and actually delivers on it. And is doing that for someone who failed so much on his own of taking care of his wife and his son. I, I, just, I just don't understand why you're calling me. Well, there's no number for Frank in any of her old stuff. You know, and he's pretty out of it. I mean, like I said, he's dying dying of cancer so what kind of cancer oh, it's brain and lung my mother had breast cancer oh i'm sorry is, is she all right is she... oh she's fine now oh that's good yeah it was scary though oh it's a hell of a disease oh it sure is yeah so uh, wait i'm sorry so why call me <laughs> i know this sounds silly and I know that I might sound ridiculous, like this is the, the scene of the movie where the guy's trying to get a hold of the long lost son, you know, but this is that scene. This is that scene. And I think they have those scenes in movies because they're true, you know, because they really happen. And you gotta believe me, this is really happening. I mean, I can give you my number and you can go check with whoever you got to check with and call me back, but do not leave me hanging on this. All right, please. I'm just... Please. See, 
see this is the, the scene of the movie where you help me out. I mean, I feel like the more that I, like, dig into this movie, the more I'm like, this is like this, but not over here. And Well, maybe it's a good... I, I don't know the first thing about why he put a lot into this movie, but my thought is just maybe it's a really good um, balance because there are so many selfish people or very flawed people in this movie that he just decided, let's make the nurse character just a really great guy. <laughs> Yeah, I think he's just the one character that's, like, 100%, like, stand-up guy that we know of. Like, there's nothing really wrong with him, and everyone else has these problems. I think you could definitely rank these characters on, like, most toxic to least toxic, and <laughs> that would be could, fun, and maybe we will do that. But You could also arrange them as petals around a flower. Petals don't have an order. <laughs> I want to order them. Well, but see, this was one of the things I came across while reading about, kind of, the meanings and symbolism embedded in this movie, just one big part of which I think is like the Magnolia itself like Paul Thomas Anderson made the poster for this movie he cut the trailers for this movie oh the trailers I loved the trailers the trailers are amazing like I I know that that was one of the big reasons I went to see it I didn't know you could do that in a trailer where you cut the different scene like they had the characters talking directly to the camera being like I'm Frank T. Jumaki like I was just like what what is this movie I can't wait to see this movie Right, but um, I came across a really great quote from uh, this guy, Todd Hansen, who was the head writer for The Onion at the time. Um, and he said, The film's structure might reflect the flower's shape. Both are built around opposed pairs of characters and petals, respectively. And I thought, like, in talking about Phil Parma, he's a good kind of counterpoint to John C. Riley, whose intentions are also pure, but who is just completely incompetent and bumbling despite his best noble efforts. Yeah, I guess right now I should try and say, I guess my overall opinion of this movie is that kind of the more you dig into it, the less you know, in a way. Mm -hmm. I went into it this time briefly trying to solve it (laughs) and could not. Uh, because Mm -hmm. there's just so much there and there's so much that fits together. There are so many parallels that it's like, it's tempting to be like, oh, well, this means that and every character has this thing and then you're like, oh, wait, but this character doesn't have that or this character doesn't fit that pattern. Like, there's always an outlier in every, like, kind of theory that I would come up with or when I was trying to package, like, all the characters into, like, these are the parents and these are the children. I'm like, wait, uh, Linda, she's not a parent or a child. How does she fit into this theory? Every theory that I would come up with had some flaw with it that there's really no way to neatly sum this up and I think that's wonderful that for a movie that's as ambitious as this is and as I mean this movie shows off for sure it's very very ostentatious yes (laughs) Yes. or flamboyant those are not the words I was looking for but they are perfect (laughs) words as much as they are that and you would expect that to usually come with something that's kind of you can reduce it down to something that's fairly simple because when it's showing off like that's supposed to distract you from the simplicity, but this movie is so complicated and yet really can't be boiled down into any one thing. Like So I watched this with my husband uh, who was injured napping throughout the movie. He took two naps during this movie and he kept waking up being like, the movie's still on. And That's a lot like my grandma was. <laughs> and he woke he woke up at one point in the middle of the frog sequence and he's like, So it's raining frogs. And I was like, uh-huh. And he's like, so so it's raining frogs for absolutely no reason. And I was like, shut up. You didn't watch the movie. <laughs> and he's like, so what does it mean? And I didn't know how to answer him. <laughs> I was like, it means something. 
Yeah. But like I didn't I can take a guess like what the frogs mean or you know how it affects each character. I think that's when I try to like solve the movies like well this person got hit by a frog but they lived and this person got hit and they died and this person got hurt but he didn't die. And like but then like oh wait this person nothing happened to him at all. I'm just like I can't solve this movie either. <laughs> no, and I did it. I rewound the wise up sequence like three or four <laughs> times, watched it end to end trying to like figure out like are they all singing like some confessional about their character no uh (laughs) like is there something about the order like do they connect in a certain order like is that the order that i should be like (laughs) no trying to define code i was trying to like be like oh well this character leads into this character and this character leads into that character no like it it just does not yeah you can't da vinci code this movie (laughs) so i guess that's why i call it a mess because i let's just say i i had a at a go at the screenplay (laughs) you know before it was before (laughs) it was Anderson was like, you know, before I film this, I better give it to Becky to see what she thinks. Because I do a lot of script coverage, so I give these notes, and I and I feel like I would hard pass. I've from got Becky Bain. no. I I have a lot of thoughts where I'm like, well, what is this? Is this inelegant screenwriting and storytelling, or am I missing something? Or is he just like, well, I want to put this in, so I put it in. Okay, like the kid who raps. I'm still confounded by this character. Well, mm. so that character in particular in this original original screenplay had a much more complicated role. He was kind of one of the main stories. Um, and his story uh, eventually ended up pulling in Stanley, the little kid who's on the quiz show. Um, and they had like a confrontation in the diner and like the little kid pulled a gun on him and tried to steal his money. This oh, yeah. wasn't filmed, right? This is this, just in the script? He, uh, they attempted to film this and there are some kind of behind the scenes shots of it. But it was never, it was just not working even when they were trying to film it. So he totally rewrote. Could he have taken the black kid out of it completely? Because I feel like it just confuses me. And I, I feel like the movie would stay the same. The only thing difference is you would just have him walk by, see Julian Moore, and try to wake her up or call 911 or whatever. I don't see what he has to do with the movie or the story. Well, yeah, there's a sure. whole mystery element because that connects to... Marcy and the body that Jim finds in her closet. Right. Who it ends up being that Dixon is the black kid's name. He, his father, I think is Marcy's boyfriend or something. Yeah. And she killed the guy in the closet because he was like abusing. Yeah. I just. Something like that. (laughs) Don't quote me on that. Basically, like that mystery is more solved in the original version. Right. But I really love the scene where Dixon is rapping for a couple of reasons. One, in that, like, his rap is so elusive. I think, like this movie, like, I I looked up the lyrics to the rap. He says in the rap, he's like, that solves the mystery. And so I was like, I want to read it. I know. But it it doesn't. But it doesn't. doesn't. And that's why I was like, why (laughs) did. I would just cut him out completely. I feel like it just is more confusing than, like, a lot of this movie doesn't have answers but it feels more poetic and that feels more confusing to me like that like really is important to the theme of this movie which is what do kids know and that dixon and stanley are such parallels to each other because dixon is giving the cop these answers and the cop is ridiculing him and saying oh don't use you know the n-word you know like you get on home like and specifically implying that there's nothing that the kid could have seen. Like, it, the implication is always that kids know nothing and that they don't know what they're seeing right in front of their faces. And it's like both Stanley and 
Dixon's character are so showing how wrong that is. I do love the title of the game show. And I remember when I first saw it, like laughing to myself because it's what did kids know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jim, I would say, is one of the more likable characters in this movie. <laughs> I might argue with that. I'm glad that you will, because I actually think that the scene with Dixon is one of the reasons that this time especially like made me be like, huh, Like, I don't know if I like him as much as maybe the movie is wanting me to, or at least maybe I, I did at first viewing, because he's just so dismissive of this kid, and this kid is like laying it all out for him, and that happens like later, you know, or in other places in this movie where kids are, you know, trying to say like something is important and adults are not listening to them. I think there's definitely like a race element as well where he's just dismissing, you know, this black kid because he's like, oh, what is, you know, this kid is just part of this system and can't possibly contribute to anything. But if anything, to me, what came through more is how like how much that exact kind of dismissiveness fucks him over because it's just testament to his actual incompetence. That's what came through to me more this time is like, yeah, he's sweet and the movie clearly wants us to know that he's sweet and nobly intentioned and also really wants us to know that he's a total fuck up who cannot even keep track of his own gun. Yeah, that's (laughs) why I kind of like that the mystery isn't solved because it's like, it's so, like he doesn't get it. And so like, we don't even get the like, cursory explanation that like he would understand it's like it's almost like inherent vice another paul thomas anderson movie where it's like you cannot possibly understand the mystery in that movie and it's because the character doesn't understand it too and i felt like that was kind of the same thing here is that like he does one simple thing which is helping donnie smith in the end and then he's like i feel great about that like that's kind of how the movie ends and it's just like but there's this whole like murder mystery that you totally didn't solve and you know there's way more going on and again it's just Like, there's something much larger going on than what we're actually able to kind of grasp. I thought he was pretty creepy with Claudia at first. It changes a little when they're on their date Mm -hmm. because she seems to be responding to him more. But I thought there is there some sort of connection between the seduce and destroy whole thing and how John C. Riley is acting in that apartment. Like she is not flirting with him at first. She doesn't want him there. And it is very clear she does not want him there for whatever reason. Yeah. And I think she very clearly points out the imbalanced power dynamic of that interaction. She's like, I thought you were flirting with me a little at first, but she very clearly is into him. I, like it is mutual. See, it's I don't, not I don't think it's thing. I don't think so. Like that entire sequence, she just wants him out of the apartment. He won't leave, which makes him a bad cop, but also just makes him a creep. And I felt creeped out by him, honestly, until they're on their date. And then I felt like he was an actual, like, nice, genuine guy. But that whole interaction with her in the apartment was a big turnoff of me liking his character. I got a call of a disturbance here. Some loud music. A... Some screaming and yelling. Has there been some screaming and yelling here? Yes. I had someone come to my door. Someone that I didn't want here. And I told them to leave. So it's no big deal. They left. I'm sorry. Was that your boyfriend? No. You don't have a boyfriend? No. Well, who was it? I was... He's gone. I mean, it's not... It's over, you know? (laughs) 
You mind if I have a look around for your safety? It's fine. Yeah, the whole seduce and destroy thing is basically, I mean, that struck me much more this time in the wake of like Me Too and everything is that it's an entire room full of guys who are there to learn to seduce women who don't want them. (laughs) Right. Like that alone is just like revolting. Uh, And so I think Becky's on something that like that is somewhat what is happening. Yeah, I don't mean that he's like buying those tapes and going to those conventions. I just mean there's something, a connection there to what he's doing and what they want to learn in that in that uh, convention. Yeah, because I don't know if I'm supposed to like Jim as a character. I feel like the movie wants me to. And yet, like, Claudia is, like, super messed up. Like, she does not seem okay in in (laughs) those scenes. (laughs) Like, she's obviously, like, super high on coke. And just, like, she seems very disturbed, sad. And he doesn't seem to pick up on any of it. Yeah. And so the, I think the movie leaves it ambiguous as to whether, like, I mean, I guess maybe you're supposed to want them to be together because it she ends. Smiles at the end. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, to me, I wasn't really rooting for them because I'm like, she clearly is someone who needs help. And he is just so blind, just as he was with the kid earlier, is just so blind to what's actually happening. Like, he's like so hung up on like, oh, her boyfriend, like when it's not even her boyfriend, you know, it was her dad who was coming by. And he's just, he's so wrong. And that like, I feel like even though he thinks he's a really nice guy and on the outside, yeah, like you would think he's a nice guy guy he's a cop like he has all these good qualities but like is actually like not listening to her not like picking up on any signals that she's actually giving him oh yeah and he's totally abusing his position as a cop to try to like spend more time with her in that moment absolutely yeah i i think that is i think that's a very valid point um and that kind of came through to me a lot more clearly this time watching it I wanted to highlight another small character in this movie who I love, Guinevere, mm-hmm. the reporter played by the actress April Grace, who interviews uh, Tom Cruise's character, TJ mm, Mackey. That's right. The character is great and like so precisely written, um, but her performance is amazing. She kind of delicately and almost apologetically just tears Frank T.J. Mackey apart on camera and reveals that he changed his name, he lies about his entire past, and he's lying about it even to this day, but he has the public image of being the savage truth teller about the human condition. I love her. Whenever I see that actress in anything else, I'm like, she's from Magnolia. She tears Tunkers down. Oh yeah, especially <laughs> like these times around rewatching this, I really was struck by her. Do you remember Miss Sims? No. Well, I talked to Miss Sims, your neighbor and caretaker after your mother died in 1980. And in, in my research, I have you listed as the only son of Earl and Lily Partridge. And what I learned from Barbara Sims is that your mother, Lily, died in 1980. I see. It's my understanding that the information supplied by you and your company and the answers to the questions that I've asked is incorrect, Frank. And and if I want to get to the bottom of who you are and why you are, then I think that your family history, your actual family history, well, this is important. What is your fucking question? Well, I guess my question's this. Why would you lie, Frank? 
Yeah, I definitely had the same reaction. I was like, again, sort of like struck by her. I had to like look up her name and her character name because like she's not a character in the movie. She's kind of a foil to Tom Cruise. And in a way, I wish she was a bigger character. But again, it kind of adds up into the whole like Magnolia's like you get a little bit less of everything that you want, like you (laughs) as well as you get a lot more. You're never quite given like everything and so there are characters like her and like phil parma who you get to know a little bit but like i'm left at the end wanting to know so much more about almost all of these people like this movie doesn't feel like it ends like i i feel like i could watch another nine hours Mm -hmm. and it would be just as interesting as these three hours and that it would just like go on and on and on like as long as this movie is like yeah I really don't feel like there's any conclusion really at all and and as big of an event as that frogs thing is is like I feel like the next day could be just as interesting <laughs> yeah um, I love that moment where I knew I was going to like her character when she's like you missed a button when he's like buttoning up yes. his shirt because you know that she's not going to be like some like fawning over him or or you know being taken in by his his women tricks. Which he's obviously doing because he's in his underwear, which yeah. is quite a sight in this movie, I will say. Let's talk about Tom Cruise's dick in this movie. <laughs> Respect to the cock. <laughs> this is the sequel to Mark Wahlberg's penis. Yes. That scene, man. I mean, let's just talk about Tom Cruise in this movie. Let's. <laughs> it's yeah. time. We're breaking the Tom Cruise glass. I'd like to tell story aside is that I met Tom Cruise when I was working at E! and I did the Valkyrie premiere and he made time for every single reporter on the carpet because sometimes I didn't get the big A-list celebrities but I got Tom Cruise I got to ask him a few questions it wasn't even one question and at the end I say thank you so much and also I loved you Magnolia and I thought you should have won the Oscar and he stares into me like no one has ever told him that his entire life and he just shook my hand and he's like thank you thank you so much <laughs> like like no one had ever complimented him in his entire life <laughs> that's all that i've ever heard of them is that he will the way he will look at you looks like he's not seen another human in 30 days oh, yeah. and like you are the sun to his <laughs> earth oh yeah like- it's it's creepy <laughs> it was it was like a, a used car salesman like you know doing his trickery but um oh, see i haven't heard the used car salesman part i've heard it's like it felt so f- I don't want to say force genuine. It was just like, whoa, this is not a normal encounter. Like, you are staring into my soul. So it was <laughs> like, like a xenomorph encounter? Yeah. Um, but, I mean, he still he should have won for Best Supporting Actor. I, I stand by that. He's, he's amazing in this movie. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine earlier today about doing this podcast, and he asked me, oh, do you think that Tom Cruise was channeling David Miscavige in <laughs> this role? And I had not considered that. But I do think that one of the reasons that Tom Cruise is so good in this role is that he's playing kind of a cult leader (laughs) and that he can really relate with that kind of all-encompassing, like, obsession with, like, one thing around, like, one personality. And now that I think about it, there's a lot of uh, similarities (laughs) between Seduce and Destroy and Scientology. (laughs) Oh, and I think that's... Allegedly. Allegedly. They're on their way now. I mean, <laughs> they heard me say it. It's right down the street. We are literally down the street. We have to start whispering now. I think that's one of the things 
about Tom Cruise's performance that is so powerful and makes it so powerful even now is that he's simultaneously being completely sincere and performing some version of himself. And you see in every moment, he's pulling real emotions out of his life experiences or whatever he's pulling them from, but that he's also simultaneously kind of making fun of himself, making fun of the image of like a male action star and that whole macho mentality. And simultaneously, I could easily imagine him as pulling some influence from his experience in Scientology and with Miss Cabbage. And it's interesting because I feel like if that would have been on the nose in any way, then again, I think that could have made his performance seem a lot more dated than it does. But I think because he's so sincere about every side of it, especially about the part where he's kind of in performing macho, he's showing his vulnerability and showing his actual weakness in every single thing he does, that it just makes it that much more powerful of a character and a performance. I will not apologize for who I am. I will not apologize for what I need. I will not apologize for what I want. Okay. I go to your blue booklets right now. I want you to turn to page 18 and your blue booklets. Fucking bullshit. I want you to go to your white, your white books. That's what I want you to go to. Go to 23 in your white books. How to fake like you are a nice and caring person. Yeah, I'm not sure it would work nearly as well if it was just the TJ Mackey seminar and not the really great interview scenes where especially he's just quietly judging uh guinevere (laughs) the anger that's on his face the frank tj mackie stuff is so big and over the top and it's really really fun to watch it's obviously a performance for this character yeah yeah exactly yet he also has these scenes where he's doing so much with almost nothing and just like staring at her reacting to what she's saying or you know we see him like kind of digging himself into these lies or like she'll point out like a slight inconsistency and he'll sort of be like oh yeah like is that how it sounded like I didn't mean that like all the little nuances as he's like being exposed more and more as a liar it's just fascinating and then in the end he gets all this like really kind of nakedly emotional you know like crying over his dying dad and we really see this character in a in a totally different light so I think the combination of all that helps take it out of the realm of oh this is just sort of like a, another Tom Cruise performance and actually feel I mean it reminded me a lot of Rain Man in a lot of ways because it's dealing with similar issues this character is a little even deeper than that but yeah Tom Cruise does pretty well with the, the father issues and <laughs> being a dick <laughs> How can I throw in the line, come August, we like to celebrate Saint Suck My Big Fat Fucking Sausage? (laughs) How do I just throw that in? (laughs) I think you just did, yeah. I believe you just did. This movie has great quotes. This movie is so, so quotable. (laughs) Shame on you! Both funny (laughs) quotes or like cleverly written quotes and then also like the narrator's quotes that feel, I don't know, just sort of like esoteric and that I could put on my wall. (laughs) Yeah, I want to give a shout out, rest in peace to Ricky Jay. He was not just a magician, but kind of a legendary storyteller about the history of freaks, historical oddities, magic as a practice. He was interested in all things occult and all kinds of like weird made up animals, which figures into this movie too. 
Um, and I really do think that, like, aside from just the great, like, bit parts he had in P.T. Anderson movies, his narration in this really helps set, strangely enough for how weird and happenstance these montages are at the beginning and end, like, oh, can we it really talk sets about, the tone. Can we talk about the opening, like, Absolutely, sequence? yeah. It honestly... That was one of the things that blew my mind from the very beginning of the movie when I was 16. I was like, huh? <laughs> right. A movie is starting like this? And yeah, it's yeah. not even just like two minutes long. It's like a long time. And I don't know the runtime. We have not seen any of the actual like characters of this movie. Minutes, yeah, it's yeah. like six or seven minutes before the credits even come on. And it's three separate stories that have nothing to do with the rest of the story except like the, concept except of the concepts of like yeah. coincidence. Coincidence and death. Uh, yeah, and like that was another thing that I tried to be like, ooh, what are the parallels? And it's like, well, these two have this in common, <laughs> yeah. but not these two. Yeah, I just, I, I love that opening so much. I love it so much. Just a quick shout out. Um, Patton Oswalt mm-hmm. is the scuba diver who is scooped up in a firefighting <laughs> helicopter's water reservoir and killed. <laughs> yes, I know that the last time I saw this movie was long enough ago that I didn't know. Yeah, who I didn't know who Pat was. was. <laughs> uh, Clark Gregg is also oh, appears yeah. in it briefly. I just love it. I I love when they're talking about the the suicide attempt and they have like a diagram <laughs> of where the arrows of where he was going to fall. But the, the the I just I don't really know how to like specify like be more clear. I just it still like just blows my mind and it it gives me a feeling of like this crazy anticipation. Like I remember when the, he zoomed in on the little kid in the last sequence and it's like these things happen all the time and they're zooming to this kid and then like Amy Man's one comes on and I remember just like grabbing my friend's hand like oh, what yeah. movie did we just fucking do? In, in, in that moment, if you'll just cast your mind back, that's when I looked down the row at the rest of my. <laughs> nearest and extended family (laughs) and saw how many of them had checked out already (laughs) and i was like oh this is a ride i can't wait to go i'm there with you in spirit enjoying it from new york (laughs) i feel like we all had our uh, had our mags experience yeah i mean i love going from there that like amy man's one like the entire song plays (laughs) over the next probably five minutes just introducing these characters and it kind of goes on from there because it like it'll zoom in to Earl's lungs and be like cancer yeah and it's just so playful and different like the exposition in that scene is much different than you get like from a normal movie yeah and there's nobody talking like here's Earl Partridge (laughs) like you just get it that's in the trailer yeah And it's also kind of like the reign of frogs, like suggesting a kind of omniscience at work, a kind of broader set of forces in the universe acting upon these people. And there are kind of seated biblical references to Exodus chapter 8, verse 2, which is about God sending a reign of frogs if you humans don't get your fucking acts together. Oh, I counted, let's see, the hanged man has an 82 on him. It's on the plane in this in the the second of the opening sequence there's an 8:20 p.m. on the sign for the speech where he talks about one of the sequences mm-hmm. <laughs> it's on the ropes in the roof mm-hmm. um i think that's probably the first one that you there's that another you might one notice. that's a uh, cards dealt in a blackjack hand eight, um, eight, in a two, eight in a deuce yeah 
Um, the apartment number is 682. There's an 82% chance of rain. Somebody holds an Exodus 82 sign during What Do Kids Know in the audience, and an usher comes and takes it away from them. And then the bus stop says Exodus 82. It gets a little bit more obvious as the movie goes on. Well, no, in part, this was his production designer just kind of finding places in the movie to insert it, mm-hmm. which is really funny, I think. Because again, Chris, like you're saying, and especially like rewatching it this many times, I love about the movie that the details of it don't actually get you any further in understanding literally what's happening that you have to like go with the emotions of the movie and the drama in these characters lives yeah it's more like setting this scene like i read uh, more of the bible <laughs> to try and see if that explained anything it didn't there's uh, you just read the bible for nothing <laughs> i read exodus <laughs> What's Barnes and Noble's return policy on the holy book? <laughs> I would love if you went to a bookshop and bought the Bible and said, "What's your return policy?" <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to like it. I'm not. Sh- I'm dipping a toe in. The- I'm reading it mostly for the frogs. You shouldn't grab me. There's nothing else in the Bible that really gets you anymore <laughs> in this. It it it's just setting this sort of like biblical tone of that something weird is going to happen and that you do feel it. This is all kind of being manipulated by someone and that there's this event that's going to happen. But yeah, like there's not that much more to it than that. It's just it's this feeling and it's this mood that it gives you more so than there's any like real rational explanation behind it. That zooming in of but it did happen in the painting. When I saw it for the first time, I was so freaked out. And when I bought it on a DVD, I was like analyzing every shot and it's there the whole time. You can see it, like, in in wide shots of Claudia's uh, living room. What do you think about it as creepy? Because I agree the, with you. The, I think the whole frog sequence was so creepy, like, in a good way. Like, like, oh, my God, what's going on? And just, like, the zoom in. Like, it's zooming in so fast to something so small. I don't know. I've never been on that. It feels like a ride. Like, where are you taking me? Does, yeah. And, like, and it's, it was there the whole time. And it just feels like something is, like, the puppet master. <laughs> like Yeah, it, it feels like the reveal that, like, there's a killer in the room. Like, it's yeah. like, like when you suddenly see, like, in the background that there's, yeah. like, someone in the room. And you're yeah. like, oh, my God, someone has been there. And I didn't realize it. Yeah. And now I do. It's a weird trick to use on something that's just four words yeah but it's really there's just so many things in this movie that are just singular like there's not another moment in any other movie that makes me feel the way that that does yeah and it's one of those movies where like to me the shining is scary particularly because it isn't tied into any particular religious belief or article of faith or anything like that and yet it's still something that's clearly kind of supernatural or paranormal or outside of the realm of human experience and understanding of course like very much in keeping with ricky J, it's like yes it's insisted upon that these things are true and that they happen they don't necessarily actually happen, but there are reports and have been many reports of, you know, water spouts or small tornadoes over mm-hmm. water picking up fish, small animals, and depositing them miles and miles away from where they were actually seen. And then also there was one more symbolic reference in this that I learned Paul Thomas Anderson himself referred to. The Magonia is a mythical place above the firmament where a ship will get lost at sea and it'll go hang out in the Magonia. And then 20 years from now, an anchor will fall from the sky on like a barn in Oslo or something like that. And they'll say, well, it came from the Magonia. That old ship was just hanging up up there and its anchor fell. 
again, I think it's kind of testament to how well done this movie is and how layered it is that I never knew that that was in reference to absolutely anything at all, much less an old Holy Roman Empire myth. I think it just kind of goes to show how in weaving in these magical plot twists, he's still drawing upon these characters and using them to layer these stories. Another moment that gives me chills is in Wise Up, particularly when Phil and Earl are singing. And it just kind of like zooms in on Earl in the bed and he's he's like so out of it. And yet he's still somehow singing the song. Like, I think every time I've watched this movie, that particular moment especially gives me chills. I saw in a documentary about the movie on the Blu-ray that Jason Robards had, I think it was a cancer scare, like really bad. Like they didn't think he was going to make it or not. They weren't sure. Thought it was... Was it not cancer? thought it was a staph infection. I just know that he said he was in and out for weeks and yeah, they didn't know. Yeah, he was know. very sick just before Yeah, very filming. sick. And then that's when the script came and it just felt like very like like kismet. Like, I need to take this and bring what I just went through to it. And I think that totally shows. And this was his last performance. This was his last role. And I think it embodies the experience of dying in a way that I'm not sure I've seen in another movie. No, that long sequence where he's the music cuts out and it's just his monologue over what the other characters are going through. And it's just like, it's phenomenal. The goddamn regret. Yeah. I loved her so. She knew what I did. She knew all the fucking stupid things I'd done. But the love was stronger than anything you can think of. The goddamn regret. The goddamn regret. One thing that I noticed a little bit more is just like that the character of Jimmy and Earl are so similar and it seems strange in a way to have like two characters who in many ways serve the same function. They're both dying of cancer. They both have cheated on their wives and they're regretful. They've both betrayed their children. Both their wives are named after flowers too. Mm -hmm. And they're both part of the same show. And so, again, it's like there's endless mysteries in here, and I don't know that there's an answer, but did you guys have any thoughts? I think a lot of biblical stories are kind of counterposed between two main characters, you know, like a Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, Joseph and Mary, Jesus and Judas. And so I think that's one aspect of it. I also think that it's part of the rhyming that is so layered throughout all of this, where it's like there'll be characters who have very huge aspects of their personalities that are similar, but we're just seeing them at two slightly different phases in their lives, you know? And I think part of what Jimmy's going through here is that, like, the Jimmy Gator character hasn't faced up to mortality and like the Jason Robarts or a, par- a Partridge character knows that it's the end. He knows how much time he has left and he knows that it's no time at all. I feel like, so like it, that's, it feels obviously deliberate. So let's see how they they differ is that Earl seems to be very regretful of how he lived his life. Whereas Jimmy can't even admit what he did to his daughter I mean, because let's come on, he probably molested her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? He can't really, even if it happened when she was a little girl, like he has buried it so down that he can't even think that I did this to her. So it's yeah, his like whole, I kind of believe that he doesn't remember. Which yeah, is yeah, like terrifying enough. Like yeah. his own denial, and because of that, he doesn't get the reunion he wants with his daughter. But because Earl does regret 
how he lived his life and treated his family that he does eventually get that reunion with his son i guess that's where the frogs come into play where like they're both inside when the frogs happen but jimmy gets hit by a frog and you know nothing happens to tom cruise and earl they just are fine and have this moment together and i also think it's an intentional decision to have someone who's still in the show jimmy gator is so wrapped up in denial about his very impending death that he thinks he can still make it through one more episode of the show when he absolutely physically cannot which then i mean to me immediately like brings in the rhyming with stanley's character which of course then brings in the william h macy like it's it's i feel like the show itself is kind of one of the central spokes of of this entire wheel in one way or another I believe Paul Thomas Anderson also like saw his dad die of cancer and took a lot of probably mostly the Earl storyline from that here. But I also just found cancer to be such a powerful metaphor for regret that eats away at you, like the things that you didn't do that like these men are kind of have both done pretty bad things and that are now kind of being eaten alive in a way by the things that they've done in the past. Mm -hmm. That line, you know, the, the past isn't through with us. It's like it's almost like the sins of the past are physically killing them. And visited upon most of their children. I did try and group characters here a little bit. In that There's obviously like Jimmy and Earl are the bad fathers, as well as Stanley's father. And then there's a collection of characters here that I called like the ruined children, because uh, Claudia, Frank, Donnie... Stanley, and maybe to a lesser extent, like Dixon. Like, that's one of the obvious themes of the movie is that children being sort of corrupted by their parents or ignored by their parents or in some way abused or neglected by parents. And that this movie finds all these kids in, in various forms. And, you know, some of them reconcile with their parents and some of them, Stanley, you know, asks his dad to be nicer to him. And like, so maybe there's some hope that he will. I don't know. No. <laughs> not really. Maybe there's hope that Stanley will just not care or something and not. <laughs> Right. Be ruined by it but just the parallels between all these like children and that claudia especially is so helpless and still feels like a child in so many ways and frank also is just stuck in this sort of very like adolescent state of just being all about sex and being very you know like toxic mm-hmm. <laughs> i found it interesting again the rhymes between these characters and yet it's not too neat and tidy where like everyone fits into one category or the other and just one final little tiny thing i found that was too fun not to share there was a reddit interview with paul thomas anderson last year for his newest film phantom thread where he was asked if you could go back what's one thing you'd tell yourself while making magnolia and paul thomas anderson's response was chill the fuck out and cut 20 minutes (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's 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 perfect that that makes sense for like where paul thomas anderson is in his career now (laughs) pt anderson followed this film up in 2002 with Punch Drunk Love that starred Adam Sandler and is a much shorter, shorter, (laughs) simpler, sweeter story. I really love that movie. Um, It was a big departure. I was expecting more Magnolia and I remember seeing that being like, huh? Also, this is an hour and a half? (laughs) To me, it feels like a very like reductive version of Magnolia because I think the relationship there is very Claudia and Jim. I don't know. I feel like that relationship was done better in Magnolia, and I oh, I see, like things about Punch Drunk Love, but it doesn't... Oh, but see, I don't think Adam Sandler's character has anywhere near the level of undue confidence in himself or his abilities. I think it's a very different character. Um, 
the next film of P.T. Anderson's was There Will Be Blood in 2007 uh, that garnered was a it million, several Oscar a million, wins. All the Oscars. It, it lost won, a bunch just, of them. It won one, right? At least one? <laughs> it won some, but it lost Best Picture and Best Director, like the two major ones. Right, because that was No Country for Old Men. Yeah, which I think a lot of people now think that it should have been There Will Be Blood. That's considered one of the best movies of this century. There Will Be Blood was nominated for eight Oscars and won two. Uh, Daniel Day-Lewis for Best Performance, Best Leading Actor, and Robert Elswit for Best Cinematography. Yeah, I knew that it won that. It's great. <laughs> That's a tremendous film. Like all of these movies, it should have won more Oscars. Than it did. <laughs> yeah, it, the, after Punch Drunk Love, basically, P.T. Anderson momentarily stepped away from making movies just about the San Fernando Valley. Um, <laughs> that just, was actually Southern right, California. Yeah, that was Southern California. <laughs> oh, that was. I think the first one but that not, wasn't Southern California was um, Phantom Thread. The Master, uh, which was loosely a story about L. Ron Hubbard and the founding of Scientology uh, came out in 2012. And then there was Inherent Vice in 2014 and Phantom Thread that came out in 2017. He also um, finished um, A Prairie Home Companion because Robert Altman died in the making of it. Right. It, it ended up being a co-direction that doesn't feel too much like a P.T. Anderson film. It definitely feels like a Robert Altman film. But you also very much feel the love that he had for Altman throughout mm. that movie. Yeah, I think Boogie Nights really obviously was the breakout for Paul Thomas Anderson. And a lot of people still consider that his best film or their favorite film. And There Will Be Blood really solidified him as sort of an auteur, like an Oscar level, like director and filmmaker. And I think like just cemented his place in cinema history in a Mm -hmm. way that wasn't quite beforehand. But I do feel like Magnolia is much more his calling card. Like it feels so like, like I'm mainlining Paul Thomas Anderson. Like it's pure, unadulterated like what he wanted to do 100% like he made it as long as he wanted he you know had final cut on the movie like and before I, I think you know Punch Drunk Love was in some ways made as a response to people saying that this was too long and too complicated and he was trying to do something a little simpler and There Will Be Blood was also a response to people who said like his movies were too talky and were you know too contemporary like he was kind of been trying to escape criticism of Magnolia at least in those next couple of movies and yet I really like Magnolia because it was him before he was trying to escape any criticism you know he had actually been basically just 100% praised for Boogie Nights so I just love this as a testament to what a filmmaker can do when he has pretty much no barriers like it doesn't really seem like he was constrained by budget you said this cost I think 37 million which Mm -hmm. is a pretty big budget for a melodrama and just you know he had the actors that he wanted and just made the movie that he wanted and I just love that there's a movie like that that can exist on this scale and be as epic as this is, even though it is a day in Los Angeles. And aside from frogs falling from the sky, there's nothing particularly momentous about what happens in this movie. And yet it feels huge. It feels like one of the biggest movies ever made, in a way. Yeah, I just love that a movie like this exists. That somebody thinks this way and decides to make it. Magnolia. Still good! <laughs> And that's all the momentum we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast, because when I can't confront the doubts I have, I can't admit that maybe the past was bad. And so, for the sake of momentum, I'm condemning the future to death so it can match the past. On the next episode of our show... We will be continuing our flower power theme. (laughs) 
<laughs> Moving from Magnolia to Roses with American Beauty, the 1999 Best Picture winner. And after that, a movie called Tulips that will write and produce and release in the next three months. I don't know. It's episode two of two. <laughs> Join us the next time we bloom on When We Were Young. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this trip with us, please go to iTunes, subscribe to us there or on any other podcast outlet you use, and leave us a review of five stars or more so people can hear the show. I'm Seth Pearson. I'm quiz kid Donnie Smith, and I have lots of love to give. And I'm quietly judging you. <laughs> it's not going to stop.